You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your source for the national security laws and powers that are being invoked to combat the COVID-19 pandemic. Or these full authorities are not being invoked. Or the DPA is being invoked too anemically. Last week, the president invoked the Defense Production Act, but to what end? What can he do legally, constitutionally? What should he do that has not been done heretofore? And has there ever been an analogous situation in our history to draw from? Our guest is probably one of the few lawyers in the country who can speak with great authority on the subject of the Defense Production Act, Judge James Baker, who is the director of the Institute for Security and Policy and Law at Syracuse University. Judge Baker has served in the State Department, the Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, and on the National Security Council, and he was the chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces. He is also, as we like to note here at the ABA, the immediate past chair of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Judge, we know you well. We're very excited to welcome you here to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. So on April 3rd, 2020, very recently, the New York Times opinion section published a piece that you wrote entitled, Why is Trump so timid with the Defense Production Act? You wrote, the federal government has all the authority it needs to close the supply gap, allocate resources among states, and prepare for production and distribution of the vaccine to come. Can you please explain why that is the case as a legal matter? And as part of that, can you explain to our listeners what the scope of the DPA is? Uh, Well, thank you very much. And thank you for uh, the opportunity to speak on this podcast and educate your audience about the Defense Production Act. Uh, I doubt that everybody um, until about two weeks ago uh, had even heard of it before. And now it's uh, common vernacular to be an expert on the DPA. Um, What is it? It's a 1950 statute uh, intended to give the President of the United States the authority to mobilize the industrial capacity of the United States for national defense purposes. Over the years, the act has been reauthorized over 50 times by Congress, 53 to be his act, and over the years, the definition of national defense has expanded to include critical infrastructure as well as public health or safety, which is important to note. Um, The act has three titles. It's a complicated statute. It was the domain of defense contract specialists primarily. I have found it useful to refer to the three uh, current titles that are are in play. There are seven titles in the act. Uh, Three remain in effect. And then I'd like to highlight um, some of the authorities under those titles probably eight. (laughs) Uh, One is the uh, prioritization authority. Um, That allows the government to tell industry which contract from the government to put in the front of the queue. And as needs change or world events happen, the government can adjust uh, who gets to go in the front of the queue. That's the prioritization authority. Um, There's the allocation authority, which I suspect we'll talk about later, so I won't get into it right now. Title III uh, presents a collection of incentive authorities that allows the government to incentivize um, the uh, national industrial base, define that broadly here, uh, to create um, products 
services and goods that are essential for national defense. There in Title VII, there's all sorts of different authorities. One that I think has not been referred to in the press is important to know, and that's the assessment authority. Section 705 of the act allows the government to do sur industry surveys to decide who could build something, who could make something, or who could provide a service if need be. Think vaccine production here in a year's time. Um, the law also provides for uh, price and wage stabilization controls, but it's important to note here that in order to uh, invoke price and wage, impose price and wage controls, Congress would have to pass a joint resolution of Congress, which of course the president would have to sign into law. And then I'm sure that some of those folks in the private sector know that Title VII is also where the CFIUS provisions are embedded in statute. Um, that was useful. And I, I would add at this point that there have been warnings um, published in the last seven days uh, expressing concern that there may be predatory investments uh, from individuals or entities that would pose a national security threat. So that CFIUS piece is, of course, really interesting. And, and, and I would like to note there, um, I, I listed some of the primary provisions. I certainly did not get into all of them. Uh, I don't want the audience to think that was an exhaustive uh, summary, but those are some of the key provisions. And when I asked the question, why isn't the government bringing its first, its, its full arsenal to bear against COVID-19? Those were the authorities I was thinking of. Excellent. Well, I, I think most of our listeners um, would probably be familiar with a case that they've read in law school um, that occurred back in the 1950s, in 19, either 52 or 3, I forget, but it was the case of Youngstown Sheet and Tube. And that case wound its way all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, what can you tell us about that? <laughs> uh, it's always risky to ask a lawyer to talk about Youngstown. Uh, because that can be anywhere from a, a seven-hour to 43-hour presentation. I will try and limit myself to two minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Youngstown, uh, the steel seizure case, of course, uh, dates to the Korean War. Um, in June, on June 25, North Korea invaded South Korea, uh, as, as we all remember, and, and the Korean conflict was on. Um, the, uh, in July of 1950, uh, Congress passes the Defense Production Act, um, looking to World War II statutes that had given President Roosevelt the authority to mobilize the industrial base. So in July of 1950 uh, comes the DPA. During that time period, uh, there was both the war in um, Korea, which was a steel war, meaning tanks, munitions, all the things we traditionally associate with the industrial base. Um, there was, in fact, at one time an ammunition sh shortage in Korea. And at the same time, uh, there was also, I was just reading today, 10.5% inflation in the United States. And the president had invoked, uh, I should be careful, not only invoked, but actually implemented uh, the price and wage stabilization controls under the DPA. And there came a time when steel workers uh, 
found that um, they were having uh, their wages were not keeping up with inflation. And there was a whole year of negotiation between the steel companies and the union steel workers and the unions representing the steel workers regarding wages. And this went on uh, throughout 1951. And then in 1952, there came a point when it was clear that uh, they were not going to reach an agreement on the timeline uh, that was needed. And the unions announced that um, on April 8th, uh, they would strike. That's why the president's executive order dates to April 8th. And on April 8th, as, as we know, he directed the Secretary of Commerce um, to uh, seize the steel mills, steel mills uh, to continue production of steel. Um, and we, we know the case is Youngstown Sheet and Tube or Youngstown. There were in fact over uh, 80 steel companies that were also plaintiffs in the case. And they saw, sought an injunction um, in district court uh, to enjoin the government from seizing the mills. And the district court granted the injunction. Uh, they then immediately appealed, um, the government immediately appealed to the district DC circuit, um, which interestingly at the time sat in my old courthouse at 450 E Street. So that's in fact where the uh, Youngstown case was heard at the district court, at the circuit court level. The circuit court ruled 5-4 to lift the injunction, but on condition that both parties would seek expedited re review before the Supreme Court. So the president signs the executive order on April, April 8th. The Supreme Court a month later hears the case uh, and on June 2nd, uh, less than two months after the president signed the executive order, it decides the case, which is a very important thing to note in the context of the DPA today. Courts, as it turns out, can act quickly and will act uh, if need be. So um, that's something to note. And of course, our audience will all know already uh, the Youngstown paradigm. And in the piece you referred to earlier, my op-ed, I noted how if the president today were to use all of the authority in the DPA, as well as his, as his own constitutional authority um, as chief executive, uh, he would be acting at the so-called zenith of his authority, which, which of course derives from Youngstown. Um, one thing that's very important, because this gets confused sometimes, um, there were uh, a number of statutes which would have allowed President Truman uh, to otherwise um, deal with the labor strike. Uh, he did not use those statutes. Instead, he uh, decided to proceed on the basis of constitutional authority. So sometimes the Youngstown case is referred to uh, as a DPA case. It was not a DPA case. Only one of the justices cited the DPA uh, at all in, in, their, in the six different opinions. Uh, this was a constitutional law case and the government chose to make it so by not relying on some of the statutory authorities that the president might otherwise have used. There's good reasons why he didn't, um, but, but it is important to note that this was a constitutional case. Well, this is really exciting, um, I imagine, for especially young law students. Um, it's, it's not often that one of the seminal cases you learn in law school 
um, gets, you know, used in, in surfaces in um, current events. Uh, this, but this, this case, for those who have been out of law school a little bit longer, this case is right up there with um, Erie or Pernoyer v. Neff. This is one of the foundational cases that law students are learning. And this is, you know, this is what we're seeing it uh, at. We're seeing it alive. We're seeing it at work today. Could, I can't argue with that. I'd, I'd say uh, the two most important cases of the 20th century, in my view, at the Supreme Court were Youngstown and Brown. But uh, let's get back to current events because we have to, we have to save the country. Uh, yes. And speaking of that, we right now we're hearing multiple reports that states are competing against each other in order to purchase supplies like PPE and ventilators to combat the pandemic that's currently going on. Uh, could you remind our listeners how the DPA could be used to prevent that competition and bring about an orderly and fair distribution of supplies? Uh, sure, thank you. Um, so the DPA is highly relevant uh, for a number of reasons. First, it could be used to prioritize and require companies to take contracts um, in most cases. Uh, to build relevant public health supplies, tests, ventilators, uh, vaccine in the future, we hope. Um, Section 101 also provides authority for the government to allocate supplies. This was intended uh, classically in 1950 to do things like allocate petroleum or steel and make sure the steel was going to tank production or ammunition production, not uh, commercial vehicle production, for example. Um, in this context, what the federal government could do was it, it could step in as the primary contractor for these things and become the, in essence, the distribution point uh, for allocating um, ventilators, uh, respirators, mass, and so on, using this authority. Um, there is also in section, in Title III, the authority, in Title VII, authority for the president to bring uh, industry leaders together to create a plan of action for mobilizing the country to deal with a particular crisis. So that's another thing that could be helpful here in terms of the allocation. You bring the people together and it helps you figure out who could make what, how many of what, and therefore, how do you allocate that supply that you see in the pipeline? And then Title VII would step in because you'd say, wait a second, we're not going to have enough of a resource, it turns out. So how do we figure out who else could make respirators, who else could make vaccine, and how do we incentivize them to do so? So the, these different aspects of the DPA should all come into play and all come into play today because we may need them tomorrow. Just to summarize, it seems that you're saying that there are much more muscular um, approaches that the Trump administration could be taking uh, to solve this problem instead of letting market forces decide who gets what ventilators or which direction the masks go in. Um, the federal government could be serving a much more robust coordinating function. Um, is, is, is that a fair way to summarize? Without question, um, as I said in my op-ed, I would bang the table a little harder. Uh, lives are at stake. This is an all-hands-on-deck moment. And all-hands-on-deck 
means use all the authority that you have to provide the resources and close that gap between the supply of essential resources, masks, ventilators, respirators, and one day vaccine and the demand. And the DPA is the vehicle that was designed to do this, not specifically with COVID-19 in mind, but specifically with the idea of mobilizing the nation in an industrial way to take on national security challenges, including public health. The but president, it's, it's, has, he's invoked the law, but he's only used it in two instances. And it appears to me that he's being used as a cudgel, almost as a punitive mechanism, rather than the mechanism it was intended to be to organize a logical uh, uh, mobilization of resources. So I think that some of the recent statements coming out of the administration will kind of illuminate why they, they haven't adopted your approach, uh, Judge Baker. Um, the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, um, who is serving in, in uh, as the czar, for lack of a better term, um, said that the states uh, really shouldn't, should be uh, taking ownership over their own problems, and the federal stockpile is not supposed to be um, a stopgap for the states. And so I imagine that you would disagree with this approach. Well, what I'm in favor of is anything that will save lives. And here we have authority that could save lives. And as I noted in my op-ed, in such times as these, the role of lawyers and policymakers is to get to yes with honor and under the law, not to create obstacles and find reasons not to do something. In this case, the issue is not the stockpile. Uh, the issue is mobilizing the industrial capacity of the United States to fight COVID-19. We were once known as the arsenal of democracy during World War II. Uh, we could be and should be the arsenal of public health in the 21st century. And this is the statutory vehicle to make us so. Um, so I, I don't know specifically what uh, Mr. Kushner said or didn't say. Um, the problem the states have is that uh, the states are competing against each other, we are told, based on market mechanisms, not based on a rational model, public health model, of who is at greatest risk and how the supply should be allocated based on best public health practices. If I were advising the president, not only would I move the process of mobilization of public health resources to the Department of Defense um, and the Defense Logistics Agency, I would put a, uh, a, one of the best leaders the country has had in the past few years. I'd put a Jim Mattis or a Secretary Gates, I should say Secretary Mattis or a Secretary Gates or a General Dunford in charge of it. And I'd say DLA, work with this leader and on a daily basis, identify for the American public, what is the demand, what is the need, what is in the pipeline, and how is the demand in the pipeline gonna coalesce so that we have what we need. That should be done on a daily basis and it should be done in a overt and, and transparent way. Um, what about people who are um, concerned about takings? How does the DPA work 
to compensate companies and otherwise avoid the executive um, violating the takings clause of the Fifth Amendment. And under your um, under your rubric, would putting um, this function under the military, uh, you know, I, I imagine that there are people who would be a little bit reluctant to have um, all of our uh, manufacturing or, or a substantial portion of our manufacturing placed under the military. How do you respond to people who have who are anxious about that? Uh, excellent. Uh, two excellent points. Um, the uh, let me deal with the second point first. Uh, I think I think it's probably a easier one to address. It need not be done under the military. In fact, currently the director of FEMA is is uh, charged with DPA responsibilities regarding public health uh, products, services, and goods. The uh, director of FEMA is also the chair of something called the Defense Production Act Committee. So uh, it, it need not be a uh, military or defense actor who is performing this function. My concern with the director of FEMA having this function is FEMA is too, spread too thinly. Uh, director of FEMA is dealing with all of its FEMA sectors in crisis at this time. Uh, FEMA usually deals with a hurricane in one district, but not a hurricane in all 10 districts at once. Um, I don't want the director of FEMA to become the logistics uh, boss when the director of FEMA has so many other things to do. So I'm not promoting a military solution. I'm promoting the use of a military bureaucracy that is in place already and expert at this. Move them to FEMA, move them to DHS. I don't care where you move them, move them to the NSC. I care that you have this existing base of expertise and we're not using it and lives are at stake. Um, on the second point, as I noted in the op-ed, there have been times when the DPA has been referred to as a commandeering authority. If you read the statute and parts of it, it reads like a statute that was written in 1950 and on in the middle of a war. The authority is very broad and, um, and that's why it has been known by some, referred to as some as a commandeering authority, but it is not, it is not. Uh, the act does not provide uh, for government ownership uh, or seizure of private industry. Um, the act, uh, is based on fair market mechanisms and contracting up until the president um, and the Congress decide to impose price and wage stabilization. But as I indicated earlier, that requires a joint resolution of Congress. In other words, a law uh, signed, in, signed by the president. Um, so absent that, uh, it is ordinary contract mechanisms and market me mechanisms that should determine cost. Um, there are also some essential safeguards here in the sense if people feel that the government is overreaching. Um, here are some of them. I noted earlier that the act um, has been reauthorized over 50 times. That is because it has built in sunset provisions. Long before the Patriot Act came along, uh, the DPA has had a uh, ex expiration uh, sunset provision in it um, since 1950. And so if the act is not reauthorized essentially every five years, it will expire most of the provisions. Um, 
So that's an essential safeguard. If the Congress does not like the manner in which it is being used or has been used to address this crisis, it can not reauthorize the act or amend it. And it can do so sooner than 2025 when it's next up for reauthorization. I just noted that price controls and wage stabilization requires a joint resolution. Significantly and most importantly, the act provides federal district court jurisdiction for any disputes arising uh, under the DPA. That means if you're a company and you feel that the government is requiring you to do something that you cannot do, either because you cannot make that product good or service, or cannot do on that timeline, you can go to federal court and seek injunctive relief. Um, so there's an essential judicial check on the government's authority under the act. Mind you, the government can go to the court as well and use the court's authority to enforce the law. Uh, it does come with potential criminal sanction. Um, the DPA also requires annual reports. And those of us who've worked in the government know that not every annual report is a wholesome and full accounting. Um, the DPA reports, which I suspect are now getting a little more attention than they used to, are actually pretty thorough about how the law is used each year. And they tell you how Title III has been used, how Title I has been used, and so on. Um, I also suspect, and, and, and this may be part of the internal problem, the, deep, the government has been hesitant to use the DPA to the full extent of the law, not just in this crisis, but generally, because I think there is that old concern that lawyers have and policymakers have, that when an authority is very broad, there's concern that if you use it to the full extent of the law, there might be a pushback and you may lose the authority, right? So sometimes lawyers are hesitant to use the, the full extent of the authority and they'll tell policymakers, right, but Congress could say, we don't like this. My response to that is if not now, when? This is an extraordinary authority uh, that, should, that should be used for an extraordinary crisis and that's where we are today. I should also note that it, it has been used quite often um, Title I, the prioritization authority, is used some 300,000 times a year by the Department of Defense alone to prioritize contracts. The Title III authority to incentivize uh, industrial um, contributions to, the, to national security is used about 20 to 30 times on a case-specific basis, mind you, not on a, uh, a national um, sector basis. So that's my response. Oh, and, and then of course the, um, the Fifth Amendment itself uh, protects companies, uh, the takings clause. So if, if the, a company feels that it is not receiving fair value for what it is producing, um, it can seek that court relief uh, under the Fifth Amendment takings clause. All right, if that is it, I'll just jump in. So how does the DPA play out in reality? Um, Imagine the DPA was employed to take over a factory. Like, who shows up? Um, what does that change look like? How does how is there any enforcement? Sure. Um, well, it's a fair question. Uh, I may not be the right person to ask it. I, I noted earlier that um, there are people in the government who use this authority every day. They're and and they're largely located at the Defense Logistics Agency, um, but also at FEMA, also at DHS, and. Um, and they deal with the everyday implementation of the act. The first thing I would note is, 
and, and I, I think I have said this already in a, in, a, in a slightly different context, the act is not intended to be a knock the door down uh, seizure factory uh, law. That's not what it is. It is an authority to help mobilize the country for national security crises, or on a very case specific basis, to uh, prioritize industry allocation of a specific resource, like MRAPs during the Iraq war. But in our case, we're talking about mobilizing the country to take on COVID-19, all hands on deck. The goal here is not to cudgel companies into doing that, but rather using all the authorities, all the authorities of the DPA come together and figure out the best way to do that. For example, Title III provides a authority to the government to guarantee and commit to contract for, to purchase certain things, right? So I don't need to come to the company and say, hey, you have to do this. Instead, I go to the company and I say, this is what we need. This is the guaranteed contract you have for this product. To me, that sounds like pretty good business. You mean, if I make that, you guarantee that you'll buy it at that price, regardless of whether there's a market for it? And the government's answer is yes. Under the DPA, that's exactly what you can do. So in Jamie Baker's vision of how the DPA would play out here, this isn't about going to 3M and say, do what we want, or we're going to use the law to make you do it. It's about bringing these, the entirety of the U.S. capacity together, talking through what we need, how do we have a redundant supply chain so we're not relying on foreign suppliers nor one supplier of a critical phys, uh, public health need, and how do we distribute that capacity um, throughout the industrial capacity of the United States using the prioritization authority using the allocation authority, using the incentive authority, and using the assessment authority. Think about vaccines. We know, we hope, there will be a vaccine coming 12 to 18 months from now. Everyone will want the vaccine on day one. We should be using the assessment authority today to figure out where can we create the capacity so that 12 months from now, we can be producing not 1,000 vaccines a day, but the millions of vaccines a day that we will need in the United States and that the world will need. Because as we all know, pandemics, COVID does not respect borders. It does not do us any good to vaccinate, vaccinate our own citizens only to have the COVID return in a different form in a different place. Um, nor does it help our economy return if we're all, we all have the vaccine, but people in Canada and Mexico don't. Um, when I talked about the United States becoming the arsenal of public health, this is one area where we could knock it out of the box, vaccine production, if we start planning now using the authorities of the DPA. So let's just dig a little deeper. It's day one. Um, and instead of uh, a Secretary Mattis or a, you know, General Dunford, he appoints you, Judge Baker, and says, what are we going to do? What's the list? What are the, what are the top three things uh, that the government should implement immediately to, uh, to get, this, get this response on the right track? Uh, well, first, uh, there are two essential questions. 
there are probably 73 essential questions, but uh, two immediately come to mind. Um, one is who should be at the table? And I would want uh, the governors at the table. I would want public health officials at the table. I'd want CEOs at the table. And it occurs to me um, that as, as long as we're identifying potential people who could run this process, um, I might ask Bill Gates to run it uh, because I would want someone at the table who has uh, credibility in the private sector and in industry and, and not just in the government. Um, and Bill Gates would have the wherewithal to bring these people together um, and drive towards a vaccine. Uh, I would want them to identify for me exactly what they need, um, how many units and on what timeline. And then on the other side of the ledger, I would have uh, who is making this, these products, goods and services, how many, and then what's the delta. And I've yet to see that in a clear manner. I have a pretty good sense of what the governor of New York thinks, but I don't have a pretty good sense of where, how he's gonna meet his demand. And I don't have a good sense of what the governor of California thinks or the governor of Alabama. So I'd want each, each state to have a representative in this process so that we can chart the supply and demand issue. And as I indicated, um, I'm not a public health expert. I'm hopefully a law expert. And so I would defer to uh, the Dr. Fauci's of the world to tell me um, whether a uh, N95 respirator is the most important thing or a ventilator or a face mask and so on. I suspect they're all critical. We also know that testing, tests are critical, right? Because if you're gonna start pushing people back or allowing people to go back into uh, the economy, uh, you need to know that they are uh, COVID free uh, and won't spread it further. And then of course, I hope I've made the point and I am making it repetitively in the hopes that it will be heard we have to start organizing how we're gonna produce vaccine now, the pipeline, um, that's critical. That cannot, we cannot do this uh, linearly. We have to do it, do it in, a, um, in a layered manner. Crisis management is layered, not linear. Um, so we have to be planning for what happens 12 months and 18 months from now, not just what happens tomorrow. And I, and I feel a little bit like we're in a linear mode right here. But let's, you know, one of the things that we keep hearing over and over again from the White House is a concern about industry. So uh, I'd, I'd like to sort of spin this around a little bit. Let's imagine that I'm the CEO of a company that manufactures automobiles. Um, and I've just brought the company back from near death. Um, our, our books are now, we're on the, in the black. We've had multiple recalls, big class action suits. Really the company can't take another blow um, and my concern is civil liability. If, you know, my company makes cars, we don't make respirators. What protections are there for me, if my, if I, for my company, if we pivot, retool, and start making this necessary equipment? And what is the punishment if we don't? And what would a general counsel have to advise us to do? <laughs> okay, all fair questions, I believe. Um... I will address liability, but first I want to step back uh, and indicate that I, I, I don't purport and I don't profess to understand whether a car manufacturing assembly line can be converted to ventilators. I commend GM and Ventec for looking at that issue, 
and I and I hope the correct I hope the answer is yes. Uh, so one of the things that I would like the government to do, I hope they're doing it, but I want them to tell the American public that they're doing it, is to undertake a comprehensive assessment of who in fact can make which thing, rather than us sit back and say, hey, GM, start making ventilators. Um, and based on that assessment, figure out who really is best equipped to do which piece of this, to make masks or to make tests or to make, make vaccine. Having done that, uh, we then go through the different issues about um, how many units on what timeline and the issue of liability arises. A couple of points about that. Uh, first, there is a liability provision in the DPA. However, as I uh, read the provision, um, and it has there's scant litigation on the DPA, by the way, but as I read the uh, provision, um, it, it appears to be directed toward uh, protection uh, for liability for, um, for contracting purposes. So it, it, is, it is liability from the, uh, the person you've contracted with for cars, you're now building ventilators, the act would give you liability protection with the person you had a contract to build um, cars with, for example. Um, and, and on down the uh, subcontractor uh, base, by the way, I might note. Um, so the question is, but what about uh, liability in a tort sense? Um, and, and here I would point to a couple of provisions. Uh, one is Title 42 USC 247D. Um, that is authority that uh, post 9-11 authority that was given to the Secretary of Health and Human Services to designate certain uh, products as countermeasures, uh, specifically um, uh, countermeasures to deal with a public health emergency. And where the secretary designates a product defined broadly as a covered countermeasure to fight a pandemic, uh, the secretary through the law uh, provides quite broad state as well as federal tort protection. Now, uh, there are a couple of exceptions, including for uh, willful misconduct. And um, there is something that concerns me here because the Secretary of Health and Human Services, in fact, declared, uh, used this provision of law on February 20th uh, to start trying to induce the creation of additional uh, medical supplies and for reasons I am not aware of, apparently, I do not know this firsthand, but apparently there was hesitation on the part of some industry actors um, to rely on that, that use of the law. And you would note that on the, um, on the bill that was passed on March 19th, uh, there is a provision that expressly states that uh, respir respirators are covered by this provision. So one of the things to look at after the fact uh, as a lesson learned is why wasn't the liability protection found in Title 42? Uh, what prompted and who was prompted to seek legislative, a legislative solution there and why? Because the whole purpose of section of Title 42 was this sort of emergency construct. So there's a month there that something wasn't happening because someone had liability concerns. Now, I'd make a couple other points here on liability. 
the first answer always with liability is to try and make a product good or service that works, right? Avoid liability by not creating something that doesn't work. Now I get the point, if your ordinary thing is building cars and now you're told to build ventilators, which are very complicated to build, um, there may be a delta there, but if you're building to specification, um, then I would think one answer to liability is don't create any. The second answer is Title 42. A third answer is special legislation if need be. A fourth answer is indemnification in the contracts where the government assumes the risk. A fifth answer is the government contract defense, which as you know, is a uh, defense that the um, is available when you're following a government specification. And in fact, you follow the specification, then in essence, the government is, is the culpable part or the responsible party, not the company. Um, and if all else fails, waiver. Uh, given the opportunity to wear a bandana or a DPA generated mask, I think most people would opt for the DPA generated mask. Um, the point here is not that I'm an expert on liability or tort. Um, the point here is in times of extraordinary crisis, times of extraordinary crisis, when hundreds of thousands of lives are at stake, as lawyers and policymakers, we should find solutions to problems, not find obstacles. And um, here we have reasonable ways in context where liability can be addressed. Well, Your Honor, thank you so much for walking us through this super important, um, but not very well uh, known area of the law. I just was curious as to how you came to become so well-versed uh, in this area. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoyed about working in government is that you would find people that were experts in these very, you know, little known uh, areas and, t and you, you didn't know who they are and they toiled away for decades. And then all of a sudden their issue was the number one thing that was on the front page of all of the world's uh, newspapers. So can you, can you just tell us how you became interested in this, what, what some people would recognize as a niche issue? Uh, well, uh, thank you. I will, and then I'll uh, beg your forgiveness to make um, two closing points, if, if that's all right. Uh, when, uh, absolutely. We, we will indulge you. Uh, thank you. Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. Um, when, when I uh, uh, retired as a judge uh, four years ago, or five, I some time ago, um, and it turned my, my attentions to uh, full-time teaching, I asked myself the question, uh, what will be the national security threats that confront us in the 21st century? Because there is a tendency to teach what you know, not teach what people need to know. And when I went to law school, I said to myself, the two great challenges of my generation would be terrorism and climate degradation or environmental degradation. So, so that's what I undertook to study uh, in law school. I asked the same question five years ago when I retired, uh, looking to the 21st century. And, and I identified a couple of the great threats that I saw over the horizon. Um, and then I asked myself, if those are the threats, what law 
what laws are most important and what laws should we have. So I have a whole list of laws we should have and don't, but I identified the DPA immediately as a critical law uh, that no one knows about. It's not part of the normal national security lexicon, right? It's not the National Security Act of 1947. It's not the Patriot Act. Um, but it turns out, does it not, that it's a pretty darn important act um, for both uh, critical technologies um, and for things like pandemics. So I undertook the old fashioned way. I uh, went and read the law, uh, identified the issues that might arise. And what I really was hoping to do was to write about it in a manner that would alert Congress to some of the issues so that they could address them before the crisis came. I was not in time, <laughs> uh, but at the very least, I had some of the background on the DPA uh, to, to uh, provide at this time. So here are my two closing points that I would make. The, the first is, uh, this is not a passing crisis. This is not a one week crisis. It's not a one month or two month crisis. This is a years long crisis and it will not be the first pandemic or last pandemic, it won't be the first, but it's not gonna be the last pandemic of the 21st century. We really do need a plan, a Marshall Plan, a Moonshot Plan, a Manhattan Project. Fill in your favorite historical reference here. We need a plan to become the arsenal of public health. We will never regret it. If we do not use this arsenal to confront COVID, we will use it to provide for the protection of the American people for the next pandemic or for all the sorts of health crises that will occur between. The other thing, my other closing comment, and I don't know if you detected this in, in the op-ed or in my comments today, but my ordinary instinct is not to make public comments. As a retired judge, I don't think my role should be to rush out every time there's a public event or public crisis uh, to make a comment on it. I thought very hard about whether to write an op-ed, but I think in times of national emergency, when the country is in need and when hundreds of thousands of lives are at risk, we all have a duty to do more and to fulfill our duty to uphold the law and protect the United States. And so I thought it was important that I speak out about this important law uh, that can be used um, to do just that. And I think it's essential that we do that. So I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to tell your audience about the law and to ask, if not request, if not implore, the federal government to use all the authority it has at hand to meet the supply needs of the American public health system and to prepare, prepare for the vaccine to come. Thank you. Judge Baker, thank you so much. Uh, I wanna commend this, um, this note in the New York Times that is authored by Judge Baker. It's an important piece. I suspect it'll be important in the future going forward. We will hyperlink it um, if you have not read it, you should read it. If you're working for policymakers or you're a policymaker yourself, 
take a look at these arguments, it's very, very difficult to think of any reasonable counterpoint to what Judge Baker has said here. Um, thank you so much for your knowledge and decades of experience, and we sincerely hope you'll come back to us in the coming weeks as events unfold, um, and we'll all hope that uh, a model, as you suggest, is something that we will material see materialize in the next few days, if not weeks. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to NSLT. We will continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments uh, and feedback because we want to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC. You can send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will do whatever it can to keep you informed and give you context on these fast moving legal developments so you don't have to search for it beyond your laptop screen. Thanks so and, much for joining us. And don't forget that the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though we're apart. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.